Alright, welcome back. I am still enjoying this book, so that's what I'm reading again. It's called The Viking Spirit, An Introduction to Thor's Mythology and Religion. This is, I believe, chapter 8 still. This is the end of chapter 8. The Continuing Presence of the Dead Even from the grave, the deceased still influenced and interacted with the society of the living. Sometimes famous people, especially kings who had enjoyed a particularly prosperous reign, were thought to bring fertility to the land far beyond, beyond the mere nutrients and minerals their corpses provided the soil. Take, for example, the treatment received by King Hafdan the Black. And this section looks like it's a quote. So, quote, His reign had been more fortunate in the seasons and crops than those of all other kings. So much trust we placed in him that when they learned he was dead and his body carried to Hringariki to be buried, there came influential men from Ramariki and Vestfold and Hydmork, all begging to have the body and to bury it in their own district, for they thought it would ensure prosperous seasons if they could obtain it. So it was decided that they should divide the body between four places. The head was laid in a howl at Stein in Hringariki. Each man bore home a part of the body and laid it in how. These howes are called the how of Hafton. The howes of Hafton, of course, plural. End quote. Likewise, sacrifices were offered to the dead in hopes that they would return them in hopes they would return the favor by blessing their descendants with success in any and all areas of life. People sometimes sat or slept on burial mounds in order to receive something from the dead buried there, creative inspiration, insight, or various other kinds of gifts. Intriguingly, archaeologists have noted that surviving burial mounds sometimes have flat platforms built into their tops or at their base quite possibly to uh, allow people to comfortably sit or lie on them, or to pour, perform other kinds of solitary or communal ceremonies there. Sometimes these areas are encircled by stones in the shape of a ship's hull, suggesting a vessel for the journey to the other world. Even the extraordinarily wise and learned Odin sought knowledge from the dead on numerous occasions. There's some evidence in the sources of rebirth of a person within his or her own family line. The closest we can probably come to an if-n statement would trigger rebirth... Uh, sorry, an if... Let me try that again. The closest we can probably come to an if-then statement that would trigger rebirth is the practice of naming a newborn, newborn child after a deceased relative but this certainly doesn't seem to have been the case invariably. There don't seem to be any examples in Old Norse literature of a human being reborn as an animal, or vice versa. Nor, for that matter, do there seem to be any examples of human being of a human being reborn into another human family. And as we've seen, one particular part of the self, the Hamingya, luck, as you might recall, was frequently passed down along a family line. However, there was no clear boundary that separated the deceased from other types of spiritual beings. For example, 
the saga of King Olaf the Holy refers to the king's namesake as Olaf, the elf of Geirstad, implying that he was believed to have become an elf, a suggestion that makes the fervently Christian king profoundly uncomfortable. Sometimes the dead would come back bodily, not as disembodied ghosts, and cause great harm to the living. In the case of, as in the case of Hrap and several other characters from the saga of the people of Luxardal and Glam in Gretir's saga, the characters walking about occurs for no discernible reason, and it ends when their bodies are beheaded, burned, or both. This seems to have been a possibility against which the Vikings took precautions. Some Viking Age graves, for example, featured <laughs> featured heavy stones placed over the bodies of the dead, which could have been an attempt to prevent them from escaping and wreaking havoc. <laughs> okay. Finally, a kind of pseudo-immortality cherished by the Vikings was a good name that would be remembered with fondness and admiration long after its bearer had died. In words that bring to mind Shakespeare's 55th sonnet, the song of the high one proclaims, Wealth will pass, men will pass, you too likely, likewise will pass. One thing alone will never pass, the fame of one who has earned it. <clears throat> Chapter 9 Formal Religious Practice The Vikings put their vibrant religious conceptions into practice in a number of different ways. Over the course of the past several chapters, we've noted some of them. Hallowing weddings and oaths with a symbolic Thor's hammer, casting a spear over an enemy host to offer them as a sacrifice to Odin, constructing farmsteads in imitation of the spatial layout of the other world, and many others. That was, I think, my favorite. Constructing farmsteads in imitation of the spatial layout of the other world. In this chapter, We'll round out the picture by looking directly at four particularly important and particularly formal aspects of Norse religious practice. Holy places where public rituals were conducted, the composition of the public rituals themselves, human sacrifice, and private rituals carried out by individual men and women. Discussions of most magical and shamanic rituals, however, will be left for the next chapter. holy places. Most and perhaps all sites where the Norse held formal religious ceremonies were located outside in the open air. Few, if any, were enclosed by buildings or temples. The main words the Norse used to refer to the places where they felt the presence of the other world, the mostly, the mostly intense were V, Hoger, or sorry, Horger, and Hof all of which, which seem to have been more or less synonymous. <clears throat> if the place was located in a wooded area, the more specific term lunder, or grove, was sometimes used. These sites 
were often characterized by striking geographical features. One, for example, was located on the island of Froso, Frey's Island, in Sweden, in the middle of a large lake with expansive views of the surrounding low mountains. <coughs> a stately tree, much like Yggdrasil, the tree that stood at the center of the Norse Otherworld, marked the center of this ritual site. Archaeological excavations there have revealed the stump of a deliberately felled birch directly beneath the altar of the church that currently occupies that spot. Amongst its roots, the archaeologists discovered a vast array of animal bones, including five whole bears, six elk heads, two stag heads, five sheep or goat heads, eleven pig heads, two cow heads, and countless miscellaneous bones from other species, as well as from reindeer, squirrels, horses, and dogs. Wow. It's quite the array. This was clearly a sacrificial site of considerable importance. Radiocarbon dating tells us that the bones were placed there during the 10th century. Two Viking Age burial mounds are located in the churchyard and may have been part of a larger cemetery now obscured by the presence of the churchyard. <laughs> Damn churches. Tellingly, the site of the church is called Hof, a modernized Swedish rendering of Hof. That was one of the words. What were the others? Hof, Horger, and Ve. Like, like the E in resume. Other burial mounds throughout the Norse lands served as ritual sites, as did bogs and other bodies of water. Many of these bodies of water were held uh, were held to possess healing powers. Sacrifices and offerings were commonly dropped on, into them, perhaps as a gift to local spirits, or perhaps as gifts to more general other world, to which the water served as a portal. Helgafell, the hill where the early Icelandic settler Thorolf and his family were held to reside after their deaths, fits the same pattern. It's an elongated, rocky outcropping with a magnificent view of the nearby plains, hills, and ocean. Intriguingly, when seen from a certain angle, the hill looks like a Viking Age house with a door. Surely it was this. Uh, surely, it was this side that the shepherd saw opening up to welcome Thorolf's son, Thorstein, upon his death, as per the story of Helgafell in chapter eight. Perhaps the most remarkable Viking Age holy site of all, however, was the Thingvellir in Iceland, the place where the country's legal assembly was held. Recall that the Vikings didn't separate their religion from other aspects of life. Thus, it shouldn't be surprising that their legal assemblies had elements of religious ceremonies in them. Every year at midsummer, people came from all over the island to take part in the assembly in which the laws were recited and disputes were settled. The gods were thought to preside over the gathering, which was, after all, modeled on the deity's own council at Yggdrasil. The Icelanders' council began on Thursday, Thor's Day, in honor, honor of the patron god of, the most, of most of the earliest Icelandic settlers, 
Sacrifices and feasts punctuated the gathering's legal aspects. And just as Yggdrasil was the center of the other world where the gods lived, Thingvellir was the symbolic, although not strictly geographical, center of Iceland. In the evocative words of historian H.R. Ellis Davidson, Thingvellir, quote, uh, sorry, Thingvellir, quote, is formed by a natural volcanic drift in a large sunken valley where the swift flowing river, Oxadra, runs into a large lake. A line of sinister twisted rocks provides an impressive background and natural sounding board, which would have been effective when a section of the laws was recited every year at the law rock by the speaker or lawman who presided over the assembly. It is isn't. It is no sheltered site, but lies open to strong winds and blizzards, even sandstorms at all times of the year. The sense of wide distances and far views of lakes and of lakes and mountains give it something of the same n- uh, numinous. I have not read that word before. Quality as possessed by Helgefell. These two sacred places of the Viking Age have no need for monuments or permanent buildings to render them memorable. End quote. All right, where was that? I want to look this up on the map. Thingvellir is apparently the close to the center of Iceland. Bring up Google Maps. Iceland. There's a big volcano in the middle. What is its name? Thingvellir, Iceland. Still a place. Although it's really close to the western edge by Reykjavik. Huh. Okay. That's not where I expected it to be. There's a a Thingvellir National Park right there as well. Fascinating. It's far from the center of Iceland. I would have expected that volcano to be an important monument. Okay, back to the book. Committing any kind of violence at the holy sites was a a heinous crime and was punishable by outlawry. People were generally prohibited from even taking weapons into their precincts. Because of this, people and... According to the sagas, even animals fled to these sites for safety when they were pursued by their enemies. <coughs> In keeping with the cosmological significance of the Garthar, which we explored in chapter 4, holy places were often enclosed by a fence, hedge, or rope. The upkeep of holy sites was financed by dues, 
Hoftalar, collected from everyone who used them, especially, essentially the same thing as Christian tithing. At these sites, deities were frequently represented by roughly carved wooden statues. Some of these were very large, and others were small enough to be carried around in a purse. Ibn Fadlan describes wooden figures of gods that the trading Vikings brought with them. This was likely a common practice among travelers, enabling makeshift shrines to be built or found potentially anywhere. Religious ceremonies were also commonly conducted inside the hall of a king or a chieftain. This did make such halls partial temples in some sense, but their religious function was only one of several. True temples, dedicated buildings of worship akin to Christian churches or Islamic mosques, for example, have left no clear evidence in the archaeological record. Foreign writers such as Adam of Bremen have left us descriptions of large, lavish Norse temples, but these accounts are likely influenced by portrayals of similar buildings among other polytheistic peoples in the Old Testament and the works of classical authors. The sparse references to religious buildings in Old Norse literature seems in context to refer to small local shrines. Given all of this, it seems reasonable to conclude that the Vikings never built or used true large-scale temples, preferring their majestic outdoor sanctuaries instead. I can relate. Festivals and and other public ceremonies. What kinds of practices went on at these sites? In addition to legal assemblies, such as the one at Thingvellir, major public rituals were part of the celebration of the three big festivals around which the Viking calendar turned. One of these was the Winter Nights, which was held on several days during our month of October, which the Vikings considered to be the beginning of winter and of the new year more generally. The boundary between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead was thin, and all sorts of uncanny things were bound to happen. At this festival, the divine powers were petitioned for the general prosperity of the people. The second critical festival was Yule at midwinter, late December and early January, which, with the arrival of Christianity, was converted into Christmas. Offerings were made to the gods in hopes of being granted bountiful harvests in the coming growing season in return. The third major festival was called Summertime, Summermal, and it was held in April, which the Vikings considered to be the beginning of summer. When the deities were contacted during this festival, they were asked for success in the coming season's battles, raids, and trading expeditions. The exact times of these festivals differed between communities. Public ceremonies to win the gods' favor were also held at times when circumstantial events posed problems for the community's well-being, such as when enemy forces threatened to attack or when a chieftain or king died. The time between the death of a ruler and his replacement was a dangerously unsettled period when the community was vulnerable to incursions from the forces of chaos, both 
uh, both rival human groups taking advantage of the group's temporary leaderlessness and malevolent spirits taking advantage of the group's temporary lack of one of the primary intercessors between them and the gods. As part of these ceremonies, an animal was ritually selected. The exact means differ from ceremony to ceremony, but steps of one sort or another were taken to ensure that the animal was divinely chosen. Usually, this would be a horse, a bull, a boar, or a pig. All of these species were readily available to the ancient Scandinavians, and all possessed cosmological significance. The chosen animal was hallowed and then sacrificed to the gods upon the altar. After the altar, after the sacrifice, blot in Old Norse, the meat of the animal was cooked. The animal's blood, which had turned the altar a thick, shiny red, was collected into bowls and sprinkled on the premises and on those in attendance to consecrate them and the event in which they were taking part. In fact, the participants often went out of their way to drink this blood, yikes, to literally lick clean the bowls that contained it. Jesus Christ. This sacrificial blood was called by a special name, Hlot, H-L-A-U-T, to distinguish it from ordinary blood, Blot. Once the meat had finished cooking, it was served to the participants. For their drink, they had beer, mead, or some other kind of alcoholic beverage, which was hallowed before it was served in their individual vessels or a large communal bowl. Interesting. That's awfully reminiscent of um, Christian communion. um, Wine and... And the body of Christ. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Toasts were offered to various gods and ancestors, as well as the ruler and perhaps other humans who were present. After these solemnities, a merry feast commenced. Such ceremonies were com- communions between living people, deities, and dead ancestors. The bonds between them, which the ritual strengthened, were embodied by the sharing of special consecrated liquids, alcohol and hlaut. Remember, hlaut was blood. (laughs) Special blood. Alcohol was the drink of choice at these feasts due to its power to open the mind to suggestion, inspiration, and emotional elevation, which placed the participants in closer contact with the divine world. In addition to strengthening bonds, the sacrifice was offered to the gods with the expectation that they would reciprocate by bestowing some desired blessing upon their human worshippers. Abundant harvests, victory in battle, general prosperity, or some other condition for which the people yearned. In a sense, there was a spiritual economy involved here, where divine factors, sorry, divine favors were purchased with the currency of sacrifice. Other kinds of events often peppered these festivals, especially the big three annual ones. Oaths, which the gods were typically charged with overseeing, were sworn on the sacrificial animal. All kinds of entertainment and sports, including racing, wrestling, and storytelling, could be enjoyed by the audience. And since the other world was especially close during these times, divination was thought to be especially potent. 
Seers and seeresses went into their trances and told their listeners what fate it, what fate had in store for them. Who led these ceremonies? There is no credible evidence for priests, full-time religious specialists, in the Viking Age. Instead, public worship was led by the secular authorities, especially kings and chieftains, whose offices were religious roles in addition to their more worldly duties. The Icelandic word for chieftain, goti, female, gitja, 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 comes from the word got, got, got. I need to learn these letters. One of the many words for God, a sign of closeness between the bearer of that title and divinity. This is another powerful instance of the inseparability of religion from all other realms of life in the Viking way of looking at things. Ooh, here's the exciting one. Human sacrifice. The Vikings indisputably practiced human sacrifice as part of some public ceremonies. It doesn't seem to have been an especially routine practice, but was reserved for special occasions of many different kinds. Um, I'm remembering a human sacrifice when a chief died. Men and women were sacrificed to the gods as a way of appeasing them when the people were threatened with the failure of of the harvest or some other grave communal misfortune. One or more of those in the service of high-ranking men and women could have been sacrificed when their masters died. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. As in the case of the slave girl on the Volga in Ibn Fadlan's account. Criminals were sacrificed as a form of capital punishment. Prisoners of war, too, were often sacrificed, sometimes in very large numbers, and along with the spoils of war to the deities of the victorious ar army credited with enabling their victory as a way of giving thanks and returning the favor. Human sacrifice is also listed as a central part of obscure but massive and extravagant rituals that seem to have been held once every nine years, which were attended by the people who inhabited an area much the size of modern day, of a modern day country. According to Aben of Bremen, quote, this is the custom, moreover, every nine years for a common festival of all the provinces of Sweden to be held at Uppsala. Kings and commoners, one and all, send, send their gifts to Uppsala, and what is more cruel than any punishment, even those who have accepted Christianity have to buy immunity from these ceremonies. <laughs> the sacrifice is as follows. Every living creature they offer nine head, and with the blood of those it is the custom to placate the gods, but the bodies are hanged in a grove which is near the temple. So holy is the grove, grove to the heathens that each tree in it is presumed to be divine by reason of the victim's death and putrefaction. There are also dogs and horses hang along with men. One of the Christians told me that he had seen 72 bodies of various kinds hanging there. End quote. That's crazy. Seventy-two. 
six times nine, isn't it? <laughs> While many of the details in Adam's account can be readily disputed, such as the ritual being held at a temple, the 11th century German historian Theitmar of Mersburg describes a similar ceremony taking place every nine years at Leyray, Denmark. It's unlikely, therefore, that Adam made up the entire rite himself. Unsurprisingly, those lower down on the ladder of social status were more likely to be sacrificed than those higher up on it. However, in especially dire predicaments, not even kings were immune. <laughs> The saga of the Inglings, for example, describes such a situation. Well, right, because he's responsible for everybody, and he's in communion with the gods if he fails them. Yeah, okay. A famine had devastated a kingdom. The people's response was to work their way up the ladder of status until, after each sacrifice proved ineffective, they reached the very top. <laughs> This looks like a quote. The first year of the famine, they sacrificed off oxen, and there was no improvement in the harvest. The next autumn, they sacrificed men, but the harvest was as before, or even worse. And the third autumn, many Swedes came to Uppsala when the sacrifice was to take place. The chiefs took counsel. The chiefs took counsel then and decided unanimous, unanimously that the famine must be due to their king, Domaldi. <laughs> <laughs> and that they must sacrifice him for a good reason and redden the altars with his blood. And this they did. End, end quote. The sacrifice of the king apparently worked. The saga tells us that the reign of Domaldi's successor was characterized by bountiful harvests. <laughs> wow. What if he hadn't... What if it hadn't worked? What would they sacrifice then? A god? An especially gruesome form of human sacrifice was the blood eagle, or blothorn. The victim's ribs were cut apart from the back, exposing the lungs, which were then drawn out of the chest and placed over the back like the wings of a bird. Jesus. This ghastly act seems to have been reserved for occasions where the person leading the sacrifice had some extreme personal vendetta against the victim. <laughs> Odin was the main recipient for human sacrifice, but any or all of the deities could demand to could demand or receive them at times. Here is oops, I lost my place. I was going to say here's the last part. Personal devotion. But the religious practices of the Vikings didn't just consist of public ceremonies. Individuals often had intense personal spiritualities of their own. An individual might encounter divine powers through sacrifice or other deliberate methods, such as in the communal ceremonies, just on a smaller scale, where other world beings might come involuntarily via dreams or omens. The content of such communications could conclude foreknowledge of the future, directions for the guidance of present or future action, 
a change in the nature of the relationship between the person and the divine powers or other kinds of hidden knowledge. Norse men and women often had a full tree, full tree, a patron god or goddess with whom the worshiper was particularly close. For example, Thor was the full tree of Thorolf Mortrus, Jesus, Thorolf Mortruskeg, an early Icelandic settler whose family drank and ate beneath Helgafell after their deaths. Thorolf was originally from Norway, but got into a bad dispute with the king, so he asked his dear friend Thor whether he should stay in Norway and reconcile himself with the king or leave for Iceland and start a new life there. The god instructed him to depart for the, for the island, so he did. Many of the other men, many of the other earliest settlers of Iceland were guided there by their patrons. Helgi the Lean landed at Eyjafjord due to Thor's directions. Ingimund lost a cherished amulet of Frey that mysteriously turned up in Iceland. So Ingliman settled in the spot where it was found, and others were guided to particular particular parts of the island by Odin's ravens. As was the case with the public mode of religion, maintaining good relationships with one's fultrui brought success, and neglecting one's fultrui brought failure. For example, in the saga of Eric the Red, when Thor Hall and his community were in urgent need of food, Thorhall exposed a beautiful poem of praise to his full, full tree, Thor. Soon a whale beached itself on the shore. Thorhall proudly proclaimed to the religiously mixed community, Redbeer proved a better friend now than your Christ. This is what I get for the poem I made about Thor, my patron. Rarely he has failed me. A particularly interesting and telling example of two competing modes of private religiosity comes from Vigaglum's saga. Two rivals, Thorkel and Glum, were locked in a bitter dispute over cattle and family honor. Both appealed to their patrons for help. Thorkel leads an ox into Frey's sanctuary to sacrifice it to the god in hopes that Frey will come to his aid in his dispute with Glum. He asks for a sign that Frey accepts the bargain, and the ox promptly lets out a tremendous bellow and falls down dead on the spot. <laughs> Glum, by contrast, states... What could have happened to that ox? Glum, by contrast, states at a feast that he had three patrons... The first is my bag of money, the second is my axe, and the third, the storehouse. In other words, he is, basic, he is basically what we today would call a materialist, and trusts in his wits and possessions rather than any spiritual being. This could be Christian literary, literary symbolism crafted by the saga's author, but it's not at all a stretch to imagine that people of such a persuasion existed during the Viking Age. People like Glum could have been accommodated by the wider societal religious framework which demanded participation in public rituals 
but didn't reward or punish individuals for their private beliefs or practices. Sometimes a person full tree, a person's full tree was another kind of divine being besides a god or goddess. Land spirits seem to have been especially common patrons. We've already seen one example of this in the case of Goatbjorn, who became rich through the land spirit's aid. Uh, his spirit was a, a live goat, I believe, that he hung out with. Occasionally, someone might have might even have a giant as his or her full tree. Such seems to be seems to have been the case with Earl Hakon Sigurdarson, who is widely reported to have had a giantess named Thorgerd Holgebrud <laughs> for his patron. The saga of the Yom's Vikings recounts how he won the great naval battle when her support for a Hydus price. Sorry, that didn't make sense. Let me try that again. The saga of the Yom's Vikings recounts how he won a great naval battle with her support for a hideous price. That makes more sense. Haken left his companions and rode to an island alone. He knew that the dreaded Yom's Vikings fleet was headed toward him, and that he and his men stood little chance of overcoming them in battle. With the seemingly endless vastness of the grim fjords all around him, he turned to the north and prayed to Thorgard. His entreaties only angered the capriciously temperamental giantess, and she refused every sacrifice he offered to her, even a human victim. How could he tell? At last, Haken made her an offer she was willing to accept. For the aid of her and her sister Irpa in the coming battle, the life of Haken's seven-year-old son, Haken, fetched the boy and had a slave kill him. The deal was sealed. Sealed. Interesting. The Earl returned to his ship and prepared for the flight with a newfound confidence. His fleet rode out to meet the Yom's Vikings, and a terrible battle ensued. From the north came a storm so thick it blotted out the daylight, almost as if the sun had been eclipsed. Lightning flashed and thunder roared all around the fighters. Piercingly cold wind blasted against the Yom's Vikings and battered them with driving rain and hail. They hurled rocks, arrows, and spears at Haken's army, but the wind turned all of their missiles back on them. Doubling the onslaught from Haken. <laughs> Those few Yom's Vikings gifted with second sight could could barely glimpse through the torrent two shockingly sinister beings standing among Haken's men, shooting arrows from their fingertips into the Yom's Vikings. When they told this to Sigvaldi, the Yom's Vikings leader, his face grew pale. He shouted above the clamor. In that case, I'm going to flee. You and the other men should flee too. <laughs> I have vowed to fight against men, but I have not vowed to fight to fight against giantesses. That's a great story. <laughs> That's where I'm going to leave it today. I'm going to read that quote once more. In this case, I'm going to flee. You and the other men should flee too. I have vowed to fight against men but I have not vowed to fight against giantesses.
That was the end of chapter nine.